0: Before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice.
1: The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories
2: when it comes to investment. We just tell you, keep it to Bitcoin.
0: Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the loony hour episode 35, as always joined by the three amigos, we got Keith Dicker with ice cap asset management in his, uh, another brand new patagucci jacket, uh, must be, a want will have to get a sponsorship for the podcast here and, uh, rich DS, everyone's, uh, Tom Brady of, uh, of macro here, acorn macro consulting. Welcome back to the show. Gentlemen. Um, I'm, here, if anyone's asking and watching on YouTube uh, in my hotel room, I'm uh, in Calgary right now. Uh, your favorite boomer, Keith, is actually going to be here next week, but uh, we're, we're going to unfortunately not cross paths, but uh, I'm in Calgary working on some real estate stuff here. I've had people on the podcast ask me before to sort of talk about what I'm doing here. So I'll very briefly, won't bore everyone to death, but I've uh, just got a, a small project starting, um, basically single family house that we're tearing down and converting to a fourplex rental, and then uh, some some couple projects on the pre sale side. I'm helping some developers with. So, in and out in Calgary, but um, Keith I think is here next week. Uh, Keith, uh,
2: I think you you want to get together with some people in Calgary. You were saying. Yeah, so I'm going to be out there next week. Uh, I'm going to get together with a with a bunch of clients that we have. But also, if anyone's interested in getting together on Thursday, June 16th, for a little hello, you have a drink, whatever, just send me uh, an email or a phone call or touch me on Twitter, and we'll connect. So uh, next Thursday, late afternoon, early evening on the 16th, if anyone wants to get together, it's fine. There it is. Free
0: drinks on Keith. You heard it here first. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, I'd love to, obviously, since we're, we kind of here and we opened up the conversation on, on sort of real estate side of things, I'd love to open up the podcast this week on that, because there's a lot happening, particularly in the rates and mortgage market. Um, and then we'll kind of expand as always across the, across the globe, because we've got some updates from Keith's favorite central bank, the ECB. Um, but let's, let's touch base on, on what's happening in, in Canada domestically here, because we had the Canada five-year bond yield uh, broke out again. It kind of consolidated there over the the past couple of weeks, and so the Canada five-year bond, which again for everybody's reference, prices the Canada's Canada's favorite five-year fixed mortgage. So if you're getting a five-year fixed mortgage and you want to figure out you know the direction of of where those rates are going to be, just got to watch that Canada five-year bond yield, and that's ripped up to three point two percent. That's the highest reading since March of 2008. Um, I don't have to remind you guys, you know, what happened in 2008, bad things. So not to suggest that that's where we're going here. Um, not, not necessarily the same dynamics, but you know, rates at these levels, um, are going to cause problems. And we'll certainly get to that in the show, but, um, that kind of leads me to, into my next point, And Keith, I certainly want to get, you know, your guys' opinions on this, but, So there was a large Canadian bank. I'm not going to name names. It's not really necessary. There was a large Canadian bank. So when you go to get a mortgage, you know, you're in the market, you're looking for a home. You're typically going to a lender. You're going to walk into the bank or call your local mortgage broker. And, you know, you're going to get a mortgage. You're going to get a pre-approval. So you're basically going in. They're going to say, okay, well, you qualify for this amount. And uh, why don't we hold a rate for you? So, you know, when you're ready to buy, at least, you know, We got, you know, especially in a rising interest rate environment, let's hold your mortgage rate. And so, typically speaking, most banks will hold your rate anywhere from 90 days to upwards of 120 days. And so, when we've seen, you know, over the past six months, your five year mortgage has gone from 2% to, I mean, we're almost getting close to 5% now. Having those rate holds has been a godsend for a lot of people. I've had clients personally where, you know, again, those, those are, those are 90 day rate holds where they're like, okay, we bought a property, our closing date is, you know, whenever two months out, I've had a lot of clients recently saying, Hey, Steve, we need to actually move the completion date up, you know, five days because our mortgage approval will expire. That rate hold will expire and we'll be subject to the new rate, which is, you know, 4.7%. And that will increase our payments by whatever. In their case, it was like 600, 700 bucks. So these are like big numbers on a monthly basis. So people are basically trying to scrambling, moving completion dates around. Anyways, one of the largest lenders in Canada, out of the blue announced that, oh, 90 day rate holds, uh, by the way, uh, we don't care we just dropped it to 15 days. So they're going to put a lot of borrowers in extremely difficult situations. Um, you can imagine, even if you have a purchase that might be closing, all of a sudden you thought you had 90 days and it's 15. So they kind of dropped the bomb on everyone. And so Keith, I'm kind of wondering, because my my take of this is like, this is not just them saying, hey, let's just do it just for kicks." This is a huge reputational risk that they're taking. And so I think the only way they would do this is if they stand to lose a lot of money. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but the way that banks tend to offset a lot of risk or, or, you know, sort of fund their mortgages is basically on, on the bond trading desk, right? So they're sort of hedging rates and hedging their bets to sort of, Um, offset some of these, you know, liabilities and whatnot. So, I mean, I don't know if you can expand further on that because it sounds like somebody dropped the ball on the trading desk big time.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't say it's on on the trading desk. So remember, banks are always focused on their P&L, profit loss. They do not want to lose money. And the way the banks are structured, there's a lot of moving parts involved with it. Uh, they have asset liability teams, risk teams, you name it. And it's, th- these guys are meeting, it's not like once a week, every, every day they're, they're watching this stuff, but for them to, uh, reduce it, you know, very quickly or suddenly abruptly, uh, you know, they could foresee something happening, which would hurt the bottom line. They don't care about reputation risk. Cause I think we all have, you know, really cool bank stories over the years and, You know what? (laughs) They're still chugging along. I think, you know, I always laughing in Canada. You know, everyone loves to hate their bank, but they still, you know, love their bank at the end of the day. But I don't know if you guys remember, but a couple of weeks ago, all the banks were raising money on the the market. So they all issued debt. They issued bonds. Some of them issued USD debt, I think, as well. And, Mm -hmm. you know, rates have gone up further since then. So, yeah, maybe you're right. See, maybe somewhere along the line that this bank got a little bit offside or maybe they have better visibility now than they did a week ago or two weeks ago. Cause remember when the banks came out with earnings, you know, everyone, you know, sort of did not provision uh, more for bad loans than what they were expected to. And even RBC had a negative number, you know? So uh, it, I think this continues to play in with what we've been talking about here is that it's highly likely or, the probability is increasing that we are headed for some kind of a slowdown, which will affect bank uh, loan provisioning, what they're lending out with mortgage and all that stuff. But yeah, but when they do that out of the blue, like that's not a decision taken lightly. They have a good heart, think about it. And now here we are, we, you know, we have Steve Srefsky on the Looney Hour sharing with everyone what's happening.
0: Well, yeah, I could tell you the industry was was kind of like jaws dropped because like that that's not like a normal move um like people at competing banks that i was chatting with are like whoa that's 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 big news um
2: so, so what's the yeah. response see like do they pull their business you know what from the bank well, yeah so i mean to if- get some Angry phone calls, and then that's all they can do about it. Like, well, I about yeah,
0: I mean, you're gonna get a lot of angry phone calls for sure. I mean, like I said, I think there is part of it, and there is an element, I think, of reputation because, uh, okay, for example, um, you know, if you're just like a mortgage broker, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't, you're not employed by one of the big banks, so you kind of have a little bit more free reign to sort of place mortgages wherever you see fit is best for the client. So a lot of mortgage brokers will go through this specific bank, for example. And, um, you know, if they opted to put rate holds at this specific bank for their client, now all of a sudden, you know, that mortgage broker is probably getting an earful from their client and saying, well, hold on a minute. I thought you told me you you held my rate. And so, I don't know, is that mortgage broker going to be compelled to work with that bank in the future when he has 10 different options? So I think there is an element of, of, of that relationship that I think was, was kind of broken because especially right now, right? Because like, it's not like rates have gone up like 10 basis points. It's like, okay, who cares? Like they cut it down to 15 days. Like we're talking like, yeah, there's been a massive move. We, again, we've had mortgage rates, that five-year mortgage rate has gone from 2% six months ago to basically we're next week we'll probably be at 5%. I mean, one
1: question yeah sorry stupid question but um don't i mean isn't that like a legally binding contract like when you sign <laughs> do you not have i know i see i know not yeah, nothing, yeah I, mean, you know what just I mean like, like the, isn't i know i'm quite naive i'll beat keith to it yes okay i'm naive but like don't when you sign the document isn't there any recourse there's no guarantee it's just like a what's the, what's the old saying like a banker will give you an umbrella on a sunny day and
0: take it away on a rainy day like <laughs>
1: sounds like something my father might have said
0: yeah i just think like that's kind of the case here which is like listen rates are going up a lot um i don't even know like there's been you know i think there's some mortgages that are being written or issued that you know are maybe not really a money maker off the bat um just with with where rates are going um you know the other element is yeah so i just That that's kind of, anyways. That's kind of what's going on. I think, like I I always say, like you know, if you look at Vancouver and Toronto, where the markets are extremely levered, like it's it's really not uncommon for people to go there. Young families that have kids that need, you know, larger homes to have a million dollar mortgage, totally normal. So you know,
2: so when did this happen, Steve? Was it yesterday?
0: Yeah, yeah. As of this recording, yeah, yesterday. So it'll be Wednesday. Um, Is this today? I'm confused. I don't know. We're <laughs> recording this on Thursday,
2: by the way, for everybody listening at home. This is where I like to go. Money this guy. is I go. But, but Marty, kind of, we gotta get Marty back to the future.
0: Kinda of, kind of leads yeah. me to my next sort of conversation, which again I'd love to get your thoughts on, which is you know, so like this happens, and and so I you know, immediately get on the phone with with one of my really good friends, and he runs a, a trading a, a bond trading desk, not with this bank, but with a very large financial institution. So this guy's wicked smart. I mean, anytime I have questions on what's happening in the bond market, I just give him a call because um, he's you know he's sitting there in the seat all day long. So um, you know, he's telling me that that basically. You know, he's like, if you look at the bond market today, the way things are trading, he says in his simple terms, he's like, you know, in terms of like liquidity in the markets, you know, he's like, if you take the pandemic in terms of liquidity there, like when at first, when all hell was breaking loose, you know, liquidity was like a one out of 10. He says today things are like a three out of 10. So... Not good. Not great. Um, he's like, it's it's really tough out there. It, it's a shit ton of volatility. And um, that's why I'm saying, like, did, did somebody drop the ball there? But that kind of brings me to my next point, Keith and, and Rich, which is, like, I'd love to get your thoughts on, on, on rates markets right now. Uh, I know we were talking about, you know... Again, this is not investment advice, but like, is there a potential trade there coming up? Just a tactical trade of like getting long, like TLT, you know, the long bond, because like our rates close to peaking out, or are we going to have one big final rip here before something breaks? um, Before yields ultimately come back down, like, how do you see this sort of shaping up? Let me go first rich yeah.
2: rich hasn't said anything yet except for i know i know naive. so i've just been looking up nuclear power statistics all the whole time <laughs> rich think the bomb marks and go kaboom with a nuclear bomb
1: listen um i think that i think from a, I mean this is not investment advice uh, but i think i think you're i think it's it's weird how the how stable the 10 years been i'd say given what we've seen about let's say consumer confidence worries about um, the health of the U.S. consumer, which is the most important sort of household in the world, um, the yen's breaking down. You know, as worried as about um, recession in Germany, oil's at 120. I mean, all the stuff, and yet the ten-year I just looked is at 3.06 percent. And you'd think that you know, in a world where we're gonna get weaker growth and recession fears, and I mean, that's not necessarily my view fully, but. Something's going on that um, that the, the tenure would have already reacted, right? In the same way that you get- You're saying, you- just to, to simplify, you're saying yeah. it should have reacted lower, I,
0: aka it should start pricing in lower growth or recession where like yields should hypothetically be falling, in your opinion.
1: Yeah, I'm saying that it's, yeah, I want to just, and to refine it further just a little bit is to say like I'm shocked that it already hasn't moved, if, if that's the same. You know, I think, you know, in a different, in a previous life, in a different cycle, Given all the bad news that we've gotten, um, I would have expected the ten-year to be at 250. You know what I mean, or whatever. You know what I mean, not not um, up or at least flat, despite all of the negative news. And that makes me kind of worried for the Fed. You know what I mean. I think that there's something there's something going on in the bond market that I don't think we've seen in, in a long time, which is you know. Normally, bad news is good news for the bond market, and so far, bad news is is damp squib. It doesn't hasn't changed at all. So, do I like the idea of sort of fading that and 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 you know maybe parking some more money there to just as protection because you don't really know what's going on and you think risk assets are going to have a hard time? Sure, I prefer um, you know not to. Um, I prefer what um, my, my client is the one who actually suggested. He's like, look at the GIC numbers, the short term debt numbers are actually, I think, really attractive. So instead of taking that duration risk, um, you know, you take the hit on the per- loss of purchasing power, for sure. But I mean, if you look at the two year money, I mean, it's, so, you know, the yield curves flat, right? So you look at the two year money, the one year money, and, and you can and instead of taking that duration risk, um, you can actually sort of park your cash there and and still lose in real terms, but at least you know. Um, like you got Keith all excited about GICs, licking his chops <laughs> like the good old days. Like the good old days. Tell us about it, Keith. Before the internet, Well when I, at 15%. when I was
2: twenty five, I could get a GIC paying twenty five percent. My goodness, was thirty five percent. But it, okay, so on YouTube, you can see this here, whatever. Open, open we see a whole bunch of turning points coming up over the next few months. And um, these would be trades. It wouldn't be, or opportunities to enter positions several times or several tranches in different markets. But for the 10-year the C that you're asking about, yeah, we, we could see that coming up pretty soon. So for our portfolios, um, you know, we, we, could be, we could be going into the 10-year like within hours, days, or weeks, or months, sort of want to give it away too much. <laughs> but that awful. opportunity, that opportunity is, is there coming up? But remember, like a few months ago, people were calling for the, the ten year to hit, you know, it's going to go to four percent, then six percent, and then ten, and yeah. the U.S. would be bankrupt. And no, that's not. You know, as, as Rich made a really good point that it seemed like the ten year has hit this, you know, three percent ceiling. And, uh, you know, it's stuck there. Now, a lot of people are really looking at the 30-year as well. So the 30-year is at around 3, call it 3.2% right now. But the the opportunity to make money on that side is pretty big. And what people don't realize in the bond market, when you're playing the duration game or a long-dated bond. Uh, so let's say you're holding a 30-year bond. To make things real simple, it has the thing called, it's a 30-year duration or duration is equal to 30 And what does that mean? It really means that if you get a 1% move in interest rates on the 30 year bond, it's going to be 1 times 30, because that's your duration. So if you hold a 30 year bond today and the 30 year yield goes from 3.2 down to 2.2, you know, for for in this example, you're making 30% of your money. Like that's pretty good. good money. Yeah. So people who do trade the bond market, And um, you know, all all of these opportunities, they they don't come up very often, but you know, again, like we're not saying this is one right here, but uh, like all of our models are sort of lighting up that, yeah, we might have this opportunity coming up. Remember long-term, it looks horrible. Like the bond market is not something that, you know, you're going to park your money in, and uh, especially credit markets and high yield debt, and emerging market debt, I, I just don't see that as being attractive but markets are not linear. They never move in a straight line. And when everyone's on one side of the boat, you know, you, you got to run the other side. Cause you know, cause you know, I, I learned a long time ago, it's better to buy low and sell high, but man, everyone does the opposite because it feels so good to buy at the high. <sighs> and and it feels even better to sell at the low, right? Cause it's, you know, things are going, but that's what we see, Steve. Yeah, no,
0: I mean, I think
2: it's, uh it's
0: interesting. I mean, you know, I think it's always just, just to sort of reiterate to our listeners, because people always get confused. You know, I read some of the, the YouTube comments and stuff and, and and the feedback that we get. And it's always important to like distinguish like time horizons because right. um, everybody has a different time horizons. Like, again, when we say like get long bonds, again, we're not saying hold them for the next 20 years. Like it's kind of financial suicide but like it's a tactical trade, for example. And it's just kind of the same thing like when we talk about like, again, like going back to to the, again, the bank of Canada and saying, well, you know, rates, they really can't like normalize interest rates again. Like they can go up to to 3%, but like, I think can they hold at three for a meaningful amount of time? I think the answer is no, given the outlook, uh, you know, the debt picture. So, but the central banks are kind of fighting this, this game, which is, this is a conversation I was having with, you know, with, with my, my, my friend there, the bond trader, which is, you know, I was like, well, man, like if liquidity is at, let's say three out of 10, if that's what you're telling me, I mean, he knows better than anyone. So I just listened to him. He says, if it's three out of 10, I said, if it goes back down to two out of 10 or one out of 10, like, does that force the central banks back in when you still have inflation at five, 6%, like, it's kind of like, they're kind of stuck in this, like, excuse my language. I mean, it's a shit sandwich. Um, Like what, what do you do? And this is kind of like, this is what, you know, Grant Williams calls like the, the end game, right? Like the monetary policy end game. It's like inflation breaks out and like central banks, like can't necessarily run to the rescue because like they're kind of like hand tied. But I think at some point they're clearly going to have to make a decision, which is, do you intervene and help you know the asset markets out uh, you yes know, back to, if you know if equities <laughs> and housing continue to sell off or do you like stay true to like your official mandate which is like two percent inflation um and and uh, so uh, again i think we're going to get our answer pretty quick uh, we'll certainly i think you know rich and i agree that it's it'll be the asset holders well, that will
1: benefit but can i just add something which is the just like you know i think you know, it's not, listen, things are not linear. And I think also things don't aren't static either, right? So we've touched on this before and, and we, we're not quite right yet, but I hold on out hope. I think in Canada, we've seen the peak of inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's not this month, it'll be next month. Again, I've referenced, you know, the, the producer price index, um, X Energy, that's been really, really good to me over the last few years in, in sort of tracking where inflation's going. And I think that will change the math for bondholders. Um, You know, I I think that, and it's just something that it'll be interesting to see how the bond bonds and the yield curve react to, in my view, less inflation, or at the very least disinflation, let's say, where inflation goes from eight to seven, still very high historically, um, but just the the math and the direction are different.
0: Well, yeah, and I think that's the important thing to also, like, distinguish to people. It's like, it's funny, because, like, inflation will come down from whatever, seven down to, like, five. But, like, the absolute prices aren't coming down. Like, they are still rising. They're just not going up at as fast of a pace. So, um, you know, sort of, like, the ongoing debasement continues. But that kind of brings me into our next sort of pivot here uh, around the world, which is Keith's favorite, uh, the ECB. Because, you know, thinking about absolute price levels and, uh, you know, crazy central bankers. Uh, we had a, you know, a press conference from the ECB, which I know Keith always enjoys tuning into, uh, again, Keith, I'd love to get your thoughts on that because you know, I think what's, I don't know what Eurozone inflation is at. What is it? Eight percent right now? Nine percent.
2: Uh, yeah, it, it, it is up at that level. And, um, <laughs> rates are negative 0.5, by the way, for anyone yeah. that isn't paying attention they didn't even- today. I don't even know where to start with, with Europe. It's you know, like I call it the economic fantasy land called Europe. And so there's a lot of a lot. You should of, get
0: some shirts made
2: up, by the way. Yeah, no, that would the be economic fantasy. <laughs> anyway, continue Europe, I like that one. Yeah. Um, so one one thing that's that's really interesting with one thing that's the the ECB is really good at. They're better than the Americans, Canadians, everyone else, and and the Brits. Um, man they're so good at communicating like they're able to say one sentence and it can be interpreted five different ways and they, they, they've always been able to dance around everything at the end of the day nothing happens like there's no result with it mm-hmm. and uh you know not to offend or support any cultures out there but uh when i was working offshore meetings we either had a european or british style meeting or the american style meeting and the american style of meeting is like 10 minutes you go in like blah, blah, okay let's do this and you went and did it and you know sometimes it worked sometimes it, it didn't but you, you did something and that that's all that mattered and then we had like the, the more the british culture meetings depending on who was on a different committee and stuff Oh my god like it was analysis paralysis everyone had long presentations and they all sounded really smart they were doing it and and after like two three four hours and then continuation the next day the meeting was over and everyone would leave and i'd sit there and I'd look at the guy next to me like scott from winnipeg and i'd say are we doing anything and he said "No, nope, nothing <laughs> there's never anything done so that, that's what the ecb is like they're very good at talking so what they said today one, they realized that everyone in the world is raising rates, except for the Japanese and, and the Chinese, and that, that's a different story. Um, but the Europeans, they had to say, hey, we're going to start raising rates as well, and we're going to start reducing liquidity. So that's what we're doing in Canada. It's what the Americans are doing as well. And, and the best thing was, um, so the, the, the chair of the ECB, or she's president, the president of, of the ECB, uh, Christine Lagarde, she said today that, you know, they're going to raise rates uh, in July and September, and they're going to raise rates up to 0%, which is just such a – it's probably – Rich is laughing right now. Well, it's just like – it's like a scene it's, from Monty Python. <laughs> I know. It It really is. It's probably one of the all-time greatest quotes from a central banker. We're going to raise rates up to 0%. and It's like that, almost as be... good
1: as her quote about when they're going to reduce the balance sheet. We're going to do it. Uh, when? It'll it'll come down.
2: How is it gonna come down anyway? Sorry, carry on, Keith. <laughs> yeah, it's like the balance, the budget balancing itself. Yes, we have up here. <laughs> yeah, so you know they, they did that, and um, so by the way, like you know, she became head of the ECB for for political reasons, you can imagine. You know, there's 19 countries trying to have input in into the ECB, like it guys, it's not easy, like the Americans have you know, a small committee, but one guy's making the decision and, and that's about it. Like Europe, again, it goes back to that meeting description I just gave you there a couple of minutes ago, right? I can just imagine if you were sitting in on the ECB two-day meeting and you would just leave at the end either thinking, man, these guys are really super smart, or you'd leave and you'd say, Man, no wonder nothing ever gets done in Europe. Like they just they go around in circles. Did you, However, did, no, go ahead.
0: Did, I was going to say, did you see that uh, I tweeted like two weeks ago? It was the, uh, uh, there was like an interview with Christine Lagarde, head of the ECB. And then there's like all these like students, like I guess watching, I don't know what, what sort of seminar yeah. or conference it was. And so the guy that was interviewing Lagarde on stage put up a chart on the big screen of like the ECB's balance sheet. And the question was, uh, how 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 do we reduce the size of this balance sheet? And she's like, she's like, it it will happen in due course, in due course. But he's like, but he's like, but he's like, and then he goes, he goes, but but when? And and how long will it take? And
1: she goes, in due course,
0: and like it's never, it's never, you know, there's there's no chance that thing is ever. Getting unwound um, in, in
1: defense of Christine Lagarde, and you will never hear me say this more than once in my lifetime. Uh, There's an interview of Ben Bernanke in 2008. And they're like, so when, are, when, are the, when is the central bank balance sheet going to come down? And he said, it'll normalize eventually relative to the economy. <laughs> and it's just like, and then they contrast that. With anyway, sorry. I mean, I love uh, the internet. So wait these, a second. Here's this is anyway, go back week. to
2: Weeky's story. <laughs> I know, but we now have two weeks in a row. Rich last week he fell in love with Yellen. Now he's falling in love with Bernanke. It's the springtime. You're <laughs> going down the wrong. These ladies wow, deserve yeah. some love. It's the spring. He's looking for,
0: for looking for a new job at the BOC. Yeah, that's right. The governor. Speaking
2: of paths, by the way, guys, Rich, Rich was in Montreal last weekend, and I'm oh, no. the score is Rich Diaz one, Montreal zero. Yeah. Oh, that God. was the uh, score. Okay, My suit <laughs> is not going to recover. Let's say that. that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it to Rich to explain the scoring system on that one. Uh, but the other, in- okay, very important point here with, with Europe. So the central bank, they are positioning themselves to potentially start raising rates and all that. And even if they again, to put this in a comparison, let's just say uh, the Europeans get up to 0% by September. If if the Canadians continue on, on their path, you know, we'll be at three percent a couple of months later. So that, that's a huge divide. So even in the FX world, you know, all else being equal, like Canadian dollar, I mean, especially because we got oil here, or the Europeans desperate need of energy, and they're not gonna get it. I don't know where they're gonna get it. Um from the things sun, are not, Keith. Come this, on, from uh, the yeah, sun, not looking good. One We're more point though. <laughs> And this is a really important point. Um, it's it's also come out over the last few days as well that the EU, so the European Union, not to be confused with the ECB, uh, they're already having discussions to put in some kind of a backstop to support sovereign debt that would potentially come under stress if the ECB starts raising rates and everything again and and, speci- and that's and, and from what I know within my chat groups it's being geared specifically towards uh, Italy. So again the crisis hasn't even happened yet or it hasn't escalated because there we already are in a crisis. but with the ECB doing this, the EU is already getting ready to say, hey you know again we, we need to get ready for this which is p- positive because before they were never ready for it and they would do a, a backstop later you know after the event but Europe is a mess no there's nothing better today in Europe well even like the IMF was out
0: like four weeks ago like on a public channel saying that you know that uh, emerging markets were likely to have, you know, sovereign debt issues this year that they would need basically bailouts and the quicker that the IMF could help bail them out, you know, the sooner the better. Uh, so like, it's not like it's not, not some sort of conspiracy
1: theory, um, but that kind of leads into, again, like. Wait, next before. Oh, okay, so sorry, before we get into that, I just want to say the I, I mean, I just think it's we're going to get into this and Keith's going to come over and beat me up. But I think the emerging markets, um, I think it's I think that sovereign, some countries like Italy and Europe, I think are in bigger trouble than some of the uh, typical emerging markets that we've seen. The emerging mm-hmm. markets have been able to raise interest rates significantly have in some cases have positive real interest rates, which means they have room to maneuver. And a lot of them sell the commodities that are ripping and a lot of their government balance sheets are tied to that. Their, um, you know, their industries are tied to that. And so it'll be, you know, in other crises, whether it was, you know, 1997 or the Mexican one or whatever it is, and you had these countries that were in a world of hurt. Now you have a situation where Brazil, which is normally a basket case, actually has re- has actually done the right things, has increased their interest rates almost 8%. Um, and, and so they're actually sort of, for once, ahead of the curve. Now, I might live to regret saying that. But anyway, sorry, keep going.
2: No, I, th- I think in a normal cycle that that will be correct, Rich. Yeah. My view, though, and a view here with at IceCap that we put together is that the, the probability of a significant financial crisis escalating is a lot higher than p- people are expecting. And when that does, it touches on, Steve, the point that you made with, with your with your mate, the, uh, the, the bond guy. You know, he said, you know, liquidity is is extremely low right now. And so during a crisis event, you need liquidity. and and unfortunately, like money runs out of the emerging market, where like Brazil will do better on a you know relative basis than than yeah. other markets and stuff like that. And then, you know, once everyone is rushed out, you want to go and buy those assets afterwards. my My point is that, Capital loves liquidity and there's only like there's no liquidity in Europe because you know, the only people holding Italian debt right now is is the ECB effectively and and pension funds because they're forced to buy it. So I I just think it's not a market that we're going near. Um, you know, we can't sell it because we don't we don't hold we haven't held it for a while, but Again, people want liquidity. I, I just think that entire market gets painted with the, the same brush, no matter what. So after it happens, that's when you want you know money on the side, and then you can just run in and you know fill your boots. It'd be great opportunities.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, that's the uh, the hawkish rhetoric continues. I'm just sitting here on my computer, and uh, somebody you know on my Twitter DMs here sends me this. Um, So I guess, I guess, apparently Bank of Canada's Tiff Macklem has a uh, financial, I guess it's their annual financial stability report today. So I guess he's got a press conference anyways. Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem asked if households could handle a larger than 50 basis point rate hike, says we may need to take a larger step. Uh, So I don't know if that's 75 basis points in July. Uh, Keith, you have
2: the updated... uh, uh sort of forecast there well i didn't realize since we've been talking yeah since we've been talking you know cats cats been coming off a bit more aggressively here uh the fork i don't think it's changed too much give me a second here i get my they are still pricing in by the way three percent
0: by the end of 2023 that's what the market's pricing in so um and i don't, I, think I don't know end if,
2: of 22 i think that's where we oh uh, sorry
0: end of 22 that's what i meant sorry end of this year three percent so we're at one and a half so we still have a doubling of rates to go apparently
2: so right now it's at three and a quarter so it's bumped a quarter point you know over the, over the last couple of days so these guys are kind of just shooting themselves in the foot essentially um mm-hmm
0: markets are busy. well i mean
1: i I think just back on the euro raising rates um back to zero um you know channeling their best monty python expression i think it's also important to discuss how screwed some of the like we talk about italy and that they definitely got their problems but just um and that's maybe more of like an existential problem a debt haircut problem that's maybe that's tomorrow's problem uh today's problem is germany um, you know, I was looking at I got I was looking at this the other day, and it totally I, it's something I completely missed. Germans' industrial production continues to lag to fall. Um, I was looking at their auto production. Believe this or not, Germany's industrial production, so their output basically for motor vehicles, trailers, and semi-trailers—that's what it's called—is forty percent off its peak of, from two thousand and eighteen. Um, you know, look at the IFO, which is like a survey of um, business sentiment. It's, con- it's, it's continuing to lag. I mean, it, you know, they might not even get enough, t- like, you know, forget Italy, but they might have to deal with a recession this year in one of its most important economies, um, an economy that's been, you know, the driver of growth in that, in that region for a long, long time. I was just going to ask you, um, I was like, is, is the crazy. Eurozone,
0: is the Eurozone not already in the recession? Like, I guess maybe, Yeah, I, f- I, I mean, it's, I don't, I hate not using officially, the
1: I suppose, but I hate using the R word, but I, I I think it's, it's, if it's not there, it's, you know, I mean, there, you, I mean, how do you square something like producer price index, uh, producer prices have gone something like 20, 25, I think I want to even say almost 30, I'm looking at it right now, 37% increase in producer prices. Yes, I get that that's energy, but energy is an input in and all, all different things. Um, and then on top of that, you've got supply constraints with the autom- the manufacturing sector in 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 Germany, um, and then and then you got Greece doing super super well because <laughs> the euro is really cheap, and they you know got rid of all the COVID restrictions really really early. So for the first time in a long time, that's booming. But Greece is too small to move the needle. So before we even we might not have any time to worry about uh, Italy, Keith. Well, might no. be worrying about the recession in Germany and France.
2: Uh, one one, yeah. one thing, guys. as as we talk here, you know, on, on the magic machine in front of me, I think Steve Soretsky is now out of a job. Uh oh. <laughs> so the Bank of Canada, uh uh, you know, Macklin he just came out and he said the economy can handle and it actually needs higher interest rates. Here's here it is. Moderation in housing would be healthy. Oh, this guy has no. I mean, I know. I know it's all like political, and they have to say what they need to say
0: to like exude confidence and it's, it's credibility.
2: Is a, credibility. Housing is credibility.
0: Housing is a
1: disaster right now.
0: Particularly, so can you explain in,
1: that. Can you explain that though? Because like, you mean the sales have dried up, the prices themselves have come down. There's no supply in the pipeline. Do you know what I mean? Okay,
0: home sales in Toronto in May were a 20-year low. Holy crap. Um, like, okay. Greater Vancouver, we're doing a little bit better. We're faring a little bit better. Um, you know, I think we were like 10, 15% below the 10 year average, but like sales activities is continuing to slow. You know, I, as we talked about in last week's episode, like in the suburbs of, of Vancouver, you know, Fraser Valley home sales were down 50%. Um, House prices, I think, seasonally adjusted on a national basis, uh, had their steepest decline since 2008 on a month over month basis. And I get it's only a month of data, but like, keep in mind, like, rates, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, like, rate holds, pre approval rate holds have mitigated a lot of the higher rates actually filtering through to end users yet. Right. Like mm-hmm. rates again have gone from two to five in like six months. And like a lot of people have been holding rates for three to four months. So like, there's a lot of activity that I think is still happening in the market because people are borrowing five-year mortgages at, you know, three, three and a half three point eight 3.8% instead of, you know, 4.8, which is what it's at now. So, yeah, these guys are just completely wrong. And it kind of goes back to like the, the original forecast again from like, you know, from the Scotia Bank guys, which is like eight rate hikes. Congratulations. Looks like you'll get it right. But like you also said house prices won't decline, which I mean, we're a couple months in and, and they've already started declining. So yeah, I, I just think the housing market is, is not built like prices at these levels, particularly in Vancouver and Toronto, which are the most systemically important markets in Canada, uh, because they, have the, they are the largest housing markets and they obviously derive a lot of GDP. Um, they're not built to function on 5% mortgage rates. They're just not
2: without a material decline. By the way, uh, earlier when we started the conversation today, we talked about, well, you heard the, um, what, what, what's the phrase, you know, the guaranteed rate is held for 90 days. It's, it's been reduced to 15. We call it a rate hold. So the rate hold, again, I'm not, I'm not in, in the housing world. Uh, so that happened yesterday. Yeah. In our loony world is tomorrow? No? Two days ago? Anyway, but my point is that, you know, we were asking, like, why did that happen? And now all of a sudden, as we're talking here now, the Bank of Canada is coming out with, with these comments. So, uh, you know, now that I see this happening, it's, it's highly likely that bank knew this was coming. So that's why they've you been, think? you know, they got a hit. phone call. They got a phone they got call. nod. They got the nod.
0: But I, so I have a question. Like, why, why would these guys keep like, at this point, I feel like everyone's kind of like, you know, like the markets are already pricing in three, which I think is a lot of tightening by year end. Like why come out like super hawkish still? Like now, like a, now markets are pricing in, you know, 3.25. So it's like, I just, I don't really, again, I don't really understand the angle.
1: Like I I know that you're trying to say it. They're fighting for, they lost the appearance. You know, it's not, I've said this before on the podcast. It's not enough that they are independent. They need to appear to be independent. And I think that that's something all central banks have have given up for better or for worse. It might've seemed like the right idea at the time. I don't think it was. Anyways, it's okay. I'm not in that position. But I think that that's what this is about. I think it's about, they screwed up they screwed up on inflation forecast fine anyone can get that wrong but the i think the worst misdemeanor is that they screwed up on the independence part of their job Mm. and i think that that's in my view i think that that's what they're really chasing now and that to me is a that's a dangerous game right because you're even because maybe the right thing to do is to pause for a year and let the housing market settle who knows um find its footing let the supply catch up, let the demand recalibrate, and then continue on with rate hikes. But I think that they that this is my view. obviously, I, this is a bit obviously it's a little speculative um, bordering conjecture, but I just think it's about regaining that credibility from an, from a technocratic and independent
2: standpoint. Well, yeah, I mean, that,
0: that's I think a, a good different view.
2: <laughs> okay, go for it. I think they are I think the the red shirts and orange shirts in Ottawa are giving them heck right now because the blue shirts are using inflation as their oh, you know main uh, main a good campaign one. A good platform like the right theory. now and I think they're just getting raked over the cold so they're saying hey you got to shut this down you know shut inflation down immediately you know me like I, I'm not a job we live in this night cleaned world at all I mean you were jobs. not there the jobs have
0: to come. I mean, keep in mind, going back to Rich's credibility comment. I mean, let's, let's not forget that Tiff Macklem in September of last year was still saying inflation was transitory and was going to subside. In September, national home Asshole. prices are up like 24% at that time year over year. So now he's saying that the economy can withstand like, you know, a 3 3.5% three overnight rate is his <laughs> perpetual liar. Um, but yeah, I I don't uh I mean what about like the jobs? Because the one thing is I'm focusing on too is like I don't know, I just like looking at the housing market because I just obviously know it fairly well. So I, I pay attention is um is uh you know the the, the knock on effects, right? So what happens is like I can just tell you like sort of how like the sales cycle works and, and I don't want to bore anyone to death here, but So what happens is basically, like, as everybody knows, you know, the media, especially in the developers, which, you know, sort of pay for a lot of the advertising in the media, obviously promote a lot of new supply, right? Let's build, 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 baby, build. And um, so what happens is the presale market, which developers rely on, basically funds their construction. And so when the resale market dries up as it does and house prices start to decline, the investor activity, which drives over 60% of, of pre-sale purchasers as basically investors speculating on higher pricing, um, those buyers dry up. So the pre-sale market tends to lag. And so what we're at now seeing, finally, it's very slowly, like it's not terrible right now, but you're seeing pre-sale launches, uh, sales start to really slow down. And, uh, so now the developers are now about to launch or saying, uh, cost of construction is still really, really high. There's still some supply chain issues. Plus now our cost of financing is, I mean, doubled. These projects are no longer feasible because we don't think not only can they not think, but they can't, they're not really able to pass a lot of these costs onto the end user because the end user is saying, well, hold on a minute. Like the resale market is correcting. The sentiment is it's turning sour why? Why would I want to speculate on a on a futures contract here in the pre-sale market? So, um, one of the largest construction financiers in Canada, uh, Kingset, um, was uh, was out yesterday. Um, the head of development saying the industry has already canceled forty six hundred units of housing in the past three weeks. So, I can and I can just tell you anecdotally, uh, a lot of developers are just running their their pro formas and saying, man, nah, let's just hit pause. So. Again, when housing and is such a large part of the economy, and as Rich will throw up his you know fabulous charts, I think those employed in the construction sector about nine percent of the uh, Canadians employed roughly eight, eight or nine eight 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 percent of those employed in Canada are in the construction industry. So as projects hit pause, et cetera, et cetera, I think that there's that that eventual knock-on effect. Again, it's not going to happen overnight, but I think you'll see housing starts
1: uh, permitting. This is uh, what happens when you have a speculative bubble. This is this is why you know you know I was looking at a chart the other day. Spain's nominal retail sales only just got back to its previous two thousand and eight peak, and I know that maybe that's crazy of a nerd, but that is mind blowing for me. It's why I reference Spain because Spain nominal, not even nominal, not not even real. That's bananas right i mean to me that's an absolutely crazy crazy chart which i swear i will i will share but just to give you like Speculative housing bubbles are dangerous because uh, a the leverage, b they're tied to people's net worth. Obviously, it sounds obvious to say it out loud, but it, it's important. And when you have contractions, it really leaves deep scars. Also, you're producing basically non-productive assets. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't disagree. I mean, I I'm not, you know,
0: I certainly make my living off of it. But like, let's let's be honest. Like, I think everybody is well aware that our, our housing situation here is kind of a joke um and you know we enacted policies over the last 20 years to basically inflate it to
1: where it is today these are policy decisions so wait i have a question though i have a question i I want to ask both you guys um so what do you think will be not the terminal policy rate for bank of canada but what is what do you guys will think would be like the trajectory like forget the rate hike one two five six whatever it doesn't matter to me i'm more interested in like go over the next six months to 12, six to 12 months, do you think that they'll raise a couple more times and then back off because they have no credibility and they aren't independent and they don't want to deal with the housing? Or do you think this is it? They're going to tank the housing market because as Keith laid out, they're getting a tap on the shoulder from the liberal party and stuff like that. Like,
0: So I'll, I'll go first and let Keith answer, but like my, my, my view is obviously, again, historically as rich as we talked about in the beginning of the show here is typically they tend to side with asset holders. It seems at least in the near term that they're not going to side with the asset holders and they're intentionally, I think they're intentionally manufacturing the uh, recession. I mean, we're already, like I said, we're already seeing it playing out in the housing market. So I'm a, I'm a bit surprised to be honest. I didn't think they'd have like, you know, the, uh, wherewithal, the, mm-hmm. the, the what did you call it, Rich? The testicle fortitude?
2: To, <laughs> testicular
0: fortitude. <laughs> testicular fortitude to actually move uh, forward with this. Um, but all, all I can say is all I know is like if they proceed to hit their 3% uh, overnight rate target by the end of this year, uh, housing is in a world
2: of pain. Right. So the, the key difference though between the Canadian market today and what the Americans experienced back in 08, 09, the American experience, they you know the banks had a lot of loans on their books, but they laid off a lot of that, a lot of those loans in terms of mortgage-backed securities, which then you know, morphed into CMOs and CDOs and all that stuff. So the, the whole world felt that pain because it is a dollar-denominated market. The challenge with the Canadian housing market is that the mortgage-backed security business is not that big. So the banks are still holding on to a, a lot of the debt. So uh, if if we do experience a a significant downturn, it's going to hurt the banks. And the big challenge for Canadians is that we've always been told that Canadian banks are – no, they're, they're a fortress they will never ever experience anything downside they'll never cut a dividend and all that stuff and because it hasn't happened it is not a risk it's one of those things a risk is only risky if it if it happens so just to lay that out there i we we, we do have that risk here in canada and it's very unique the only other country that has the same risk and is even at a higher level i think is are the aussies yeah. so canada and australia we're, we're both screwed if if some kind of financial risk would uh, engulf the world again. But to answer your question, Rich, um, you know, we suspect the Bank of Canada, they'll, they'll plateau with rates, Q4, and at some point in, in 2023, they'll have to start cutting rates in line with everyone else around the world. That, that's just what we expect to happen. So it does create a, a pretty good opportunity in, in the interest rate market. I'd like to, to also add something as well.
0: Um- I actually tuned in last week to uh deputy governor Beaudry at the bank of Canada. So he was like the speech following the rate hike announcement. There's actually some good questions from the reporters for once. I was like, Oh, okay. Like it was actually like, um, so basically there was a couple of reports. They basically asked them, they said, would you like, you know, last time inflation was this high, you know, you like you had to bring out like Paul Volcker and create like, basically this like downturn recession. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to manufacture, uh, a recession in order to get inflation back down to target. And he basically, he basically said more like, I mean, he kind of jumbled around a bit, but he basically said, yes, like, but we're, we're, we're aiming for a soft landing. We think he said, basically his words, like we think we can engineer a soft landing where we can bring demand down enough without hurting the economy and pushing us into recession. I, I again, I personally think like there's no such thing as soft landings. Like you, you're not landing this thing successfully after, you know, expanding the monetary base by what, 30% in the past two years. And you're going to take 30 year highs in inflation and just achieve this magical soft landing. And nobody's going to lose jobs and, and housing's going to just moderate. Like, I just don't see this, 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 but again, he, he basically, he basically said it. I took his words. I kind of read through what he was saying, which was like, Yes, we will manufacture a recession, and, I, and so I still think, as surprising as that may may sound to a lot of people, it it seems to me
2: evident that that's now what they're trying to do. I think that's outstanding because, again, as a money manager, you know you don't want to let your feelings and what they should do. So you want to look at okay, what are they? What are they telling you? And we've already expressed our thoughts that this is what they are doing implicitly. You know, I've said before. You know, the Americans, they want a deep recession that will solve their inflation problem. You know, the Chinese are shutting everything down again over on their side of, of in their country to reduce demand. But for uh, the Bank of Canada come out to explicitly state, yeah, we'll, we would do that, that's incredibly powerful to know as an investor. Like it's really cool. In the, yeah. you know, happy, happy days kind of cool. Well, no, I mean, like, I mean, just to
0: kind of wrap this up here, but like, basically that was kind of the whole, like, the whole purpose of the show is really to get people thinking, right. It's not necessarily to give you like trade ideas. It's just to get you thinking. And like, you know, I I don't know. I mean, I'm in the real estate industry. Like I get paid off of like a good housing market typically. I mean, I still do well in downturns because I try to like educate my buyers and stuff, but I get bet. I get paid better in bull markets. And I'm telling you like as as wrong as I was initially on the rate hiking call, I will humbly admit that I missed the fact that they, I didn't think they'd be willingly willing to basically engineer a recession. So like, again, when the facts change and the data changes, I think you just have to kind of shift with it. And regardless of what your like emotion is about it or what you want to happen, it's not about what I want to happen. It's like, listen, this is what they've chosen to do. Uh, and when that recession comes, let's see how they react because I still think it's coming. I know Rich, you hate that word,
1: but, um, no, no. I mean, it's just I don't I don't like people who spend a lot of time predicting it. I think that that's kind of a waste of time. But I, I, I agree with your sentiment. I, you know, what I've changed my mind, too. I didn't think they had get the balls to do it either, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting to to to. But so, you know, I mean, that's it. You know, you, that's it. When the data changes, you change your mind. Um, but speaking of getting people to think, you guys promised I could have a minute, so I'm going to do this. <laughs> this, is, asked- this is
0: this uh, is what's that segment we have? It's called uh, Weird <laughs> Things with Rich. So uh, Rich, we'll give you we'll give you a couple minutes here on the on the spot to wrap okay, it up.
1: Okay, okay. So uh, one of the comments in the YouTube. Um, so first of all, the comments in general have been great. Thank you very much for everybody's support. Um, I was terrified at first to read them because I have really thin skin, but everybody's been really, really nice. And one of the comments was what kind of assets, commodity, price signals, economic indicators do I look at? Um, Basically, the question was, what's my macro model? I don't really have a macro model. If you go on my website, um, everything is pretty well clear. I've got chart packs. You can see the way I organize my thinking, and that's what this is about. But I do have some words on my framework, um, which I can quickly share, um, and how I sort of organize my my world. Keith and Steve will have different views on this, but this is sort of the way I've learned, and this is obviously evolved over the years. And if you if you come find me in five years from now, it'll probably change. But at the moment, it's set up in four parts. Um, they ebb and flow with respect to what's important when. But in general, it's you got like a macroeconomic um, macroeconomic, you got liquidity. I'll get into that. And then valuation and sentiment. So macroeconomic is everything from economic activity, retail sales, consumer spending, investment, balance of trade, terms of trade, industrial production, capacity, utilization. Um, we talked about demographics. We talked about wage growth, labor market. I mean, I can go on and on and on, but so looking at the macroeconomics, that's, when I think of macroeconomics, so growth, basically, where's the coming? Where's the growth coming? Where's it going? Is it accelerating, decelerating where are the risks to grow? Then there's liquidity. Now liquidity, I think is something that my former employers used to obsess about. I think it's less important. I just use that as a catch-all phrase for basically central bank policy and inflation, and obviously the reaction to both of those things. And of course, things like balance sheets, central bank balance sheets, interventions, um, you know, when the Canadian Bank of Canada buys 86% of all the bond issuance, that's something I would throw into the liquidity bucket. Um, the more liquidity is generally, um, you know, when you think price earnings ratios rise and you take away liquidity, as you can see what's happening in the housing market, asset prices tend to fall. That's not always true, but, you know, in general, that can be true. And then the other b- two pieces, which are slightly less important the things I always look at, are valuation. Lumped into the valuation piece is earnings. So what, what, what are you paying for an asset? How much does that change? When does it change? What drives the change? So things like price to earnings ratio, price to book, price to sales, EV, EV to EBITDA, EV to EBITDA, enterprise value to earnings before interest and taxes. Um, and then obviously I have earnings models that flow into that. So Canada earnings models, you know, if you want to plot can- Canadian equity markets earnings, you just take the US ISM manufacturing PMI, you th- slap on oil, you do the year on year change and you basically I can basically tell you borderline certainty what I think the, your, the Canadian EPS growth will be in 12 months. It's, it's, sometimes it's very, very easy. Other times it's impossible, but So that's the valuation piece. And the final piece is sentiment. I mean, we talk a lot about sentiment here. What's the market feeling, thinking? How do you determine that? There's things like relative strength indicators. Um, Are you overbought, oversold? We talked about um, spreads. You know, are spreads expanding or contracting? Um, Flows are an important sentiment indicator. Keith always says, you know, go, go to the other side of the boat. When the boat pitches, that's, you know, going after things that are deeply, buying things that are deeply, deeply oversold, selling things that are overbought. Um, So that's the sentiment piece. And then as far as what kind of assets, um, it's stocks, bonds, and currencies. I don't do anything private deals. I'm not smart enough for that. Um, And then commodities. I think I just, I love commodities. because I think we just underestimate how powerful and important they are. So anyway, there you go. That's the answer to the question that the, the person so kindly submitted. I don't know if we're going to do that every week. Well, but no, you... yeah. By, by
0: the way, just so plug, I think, Rich, I don't know if you announced it, but you will be launching a service uh, for, so for maybe for like, I was like, for those that like can't afford Big Keith's minimums uh, on the uh, investment side, Rich, I think is launching like a happy medium product which is sort of the retail version of like, listen, if you wanted to sort of manage your own portfolio, you know, you got 20, 30, 40, 50, hundred grand to, to work with. Um, you know, you, you've got a retail based sort of positioning where basically uh, based on, you know, macro fundamentals.
1: I don't think, it, you know, investors, I think at the retail level, I think they, they get attracted by the weird and the wonderful. Yeah. And I would submit to you that like 90% of people should stay far away from the weird and the wonderful. And I think what I'm trying to do is just to provide sort of a sounding board, maybe some resources that people can at an affordable price,
0: go out and look yeah. up. And,
1: and- I, I think
0: you're being too humble. I think, I think it was a good, pro- I think it's a great product. I, I personally read through it and I know like having chatted with a lot of retail investors that that's kind of like what people are looking for is just simple asset allocation uh, in, in a long only format, ETF based. That's accessible,
1: I think, is the other thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
0: So um, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, as always, we appreciate your support. All we ask is that you share this episode with at least one family or friend uh, to continue to grow the Looney Hour community. And we'll see you next week.